If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. We're going through the epistle of 1 John. We find ourselves in chapter 2. And I said the title of our message will be, how about love in practice? Which is different than just simply this idea of love that we have, especially in our culture. It's this mushy, emotional thing. And that has its place, of course. But God's love is an action word. It's a verb, as we read in 1 Corinthians 13. So this is love in action. I guess that's a good one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Father, that you've given us these instructions before we leave earth, a Bible, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. And I just pray, Father, that we can walk in the truths that we read and study and that they wouldn't just be an academic endeavor, that we wouldn't just simply gain knowledge for knowledge's sake, but that we would allow you to penetrate, Lord, our hard hearts and the depth of our selfish beings. And so thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that it gives us light for our path. It illuminates the way that we should walk and live in this earth. And uh, Father, we just pray that you'd have your way in our hearts as we offer this time up to you in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So First John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 is what we're going to cover. Remember... In 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, John would include himself in the apostles and they would say that we've experienced Christ on every level. We've seen him, we heard him, our hands have handled him. And so in that, there's an opportunity now for fellowship. And the fellowship is one with another and then we have fellowship with God. He would go on to say that um, he wanted us to understand that through that knowledge of coming to know God, coming to understand uh, who he experience him, there's a fullness of joy that we can experience. And so I think that's a good foundation for us to remember as we go through this epistle because it reads like a sermon. It's, it's pretty hard hitting. He's coming with some serious truth and he would even say that, that God is light and in him is no darkness and if we say that we walk in the light and yet we sin, we, we're actually walking in darkness. In no uncertain terms is he saying that we will reach sinless perfection on this earth. He's not saying that we'll get to a point in life where we no longer sin. In fact, he would say if someone says that he hasn't sinned, he deceives himself and the truth is not in him. And so as you go through 1 John chapter 1, you see this foundation that he's setting, but I, remember, I want you to remember just in the back of your mind that your joy would be full. And so as I was reading and studying through just this week, um, man, it's just, it's hitting home and it's, it's, it's being very personal as I'm sitting with it and learning and just realizing, wow, this is so different than how I would do it. This is so different than how I even maybe want to do it, but God knows what he's talking about. And so hopefully as we sit under the word, we allow God to just examine us, to take that light that he is and expose the darkness of our hearts and our selfish ways. And so we'll see that as we go through this. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Let's start out with the first 
A little section of verse 1, he says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And so we know again through chapter 1, we can read it in verse 8. He says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Notice verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so twice he's mentioning, we know that we sin and we know that we shouldn't say that we have no sin. But and then right here he says, I write to you so that you may not sin. If you and I sin, it's not because we have to. God has made a way for us not to sin. Unfortunately, we will sin and we do sin. But God wants us to know we don't have to sin. Jesus has made a way for us not to sin. But because we're selfish, because we're this work in progress, because we haven't got it all figured out, we will sin. And then he goes on in that next section, for the end of verse 1, and then going into verse 2, he says, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And so Jesus is our advocate when we sin. Not only did he pay the penalty for our sins, but when we sin, we are accused by the accuser of the brethren, Satan, according to Revelation. He is the accuser of the brethren. He takes what you and I do and he presents it before the Father and he says, look, look at what they're doing. Look at what they're thinking. Look at how they're acting. Look at how they're behaving. And Jesus is our advocate. The idea of an advocate is a defense attorney. He is our friend in that sense. He stands up for us, but more importantly, he defends us. Jesus is our defender even when we sin now. God is not shocked by human behavior. He has seen it all in advance. He didn't forgive you at one time and later say, look what they did now. If I would have known they would go and and do that, I would not have never forgiven them. His forgiveness is available to us now. And so Jesus, as our advocate, goes before the Father and he shows, yes, though we're guilty, he has paid for that sin. I found this little article here that reads like a little court case. Let me read it to you. It says, it is as if We stand as the accused in the heavenly court before our righteous judge, God the Father. Our advocate stands up to answer the charges. He is completely guilty, Your Honor. In fact, he has even done worse than what he is accused of and now makes full and complete confession before you. The gavel slams and the judge asks, What should his sentence be? Our advocate answers, His sentence shall be death. He deserves the full wrath of this righteous court. All along, our accuser, Satan, is having great fun at all this. We are guilty. We admit our guilt. We see our punishment. But then, our advocate asks to approach the bench. And he draws close to the judge. He simply says, Dad, this one belongs to me. I paid his price. I took the wrath and punishment punishment from this court that he deserves the gavel sounds again and the judge cries out guilty as charged 
penalty satisfied. Our accuser starts going crazy. Aren't you even going to put him on probation? No, the judge shouts. The penalty has been completely paid by my son. There is nothing to put him on probation for. Then the judge turns to our advocate and says, Son, you said this one belongs to you. I release him into your care. Case closed. And so that should cause us to rejoice, to be overwhelmed with gratitude, to recognize and acknowledge, yes, I am a guilty sinner. Yes, I have fallen short of God's standard of perfection. This to me is a good contrast between religion and religious people and people who will actually be in heaven, who have a relationship with God. You see, religion puts its best foot forward. It tries its hardest in its own strength. It does the best it can for as long as it can, but inevitably, eventually, religion's true colors show itself for what it is. You can't do what God is calling you to do in your own strength. None of us can. I have a very good friend who I was associated with at Calvary Chapel in Downey. And this guy was given a word from the Lord. And he was told that uh, he would go to Provo, Utah. I don't know if you know anything about Utah, but I don't know if you know anything about Provo, Utah. And so he has no idea where Utah is, let alone where Provo, Utah is. So he goes to the map and well, okay, Salt Lake City, and then just a little further down, Provo, Utah, little tiny nothing. Number one highest concentration of Mormons in all of the world are found in Provo, Utah. Something ridiculous like 98% are Mormons who live in Provo, Utah, and that's where God is calling this young man, his wife, and his two little children to go. And so he goes to Provo, Utah in obedience to God. And this is one of those guys who just, as far as apologetics is concerned, off the charts. Apologetics is a defense or a defending of the faith. Uh, the, The idea comes from give to every man an answer of the hope that lies within you with gentleness and meekness. Be ready to give a defense. And so he goes to Provo, Utah. Well, God quickly begins to open doors for him in ministry. He gets to go on the campus of BYU, Brigham Young University, and um, Utah State University. And he will be the representative of the Christian argument in both of those colleges for the Christian side. In Brigham Young University, he will go to religion class, and he will represent what the Christian believes based on the Bible, as opposed to what Mormonism teaches. And so there he would be, and he would just be able to, kids would be asking questions, and he's just, man, he's just answers left and right, and just incredible brain that God has given this guy, just an incredible gift to be able to do that. So I'm talking to him one day, and I'm thinking, man, is that hard? I mean, that's crazy, dude. I mean, that's, that's you're right, like, you're in the, the, beat, the, the battle, right? In the heat of the warfare right there. And he says, no, nah, it's not hard at all. Actually, it's pretty easy. And I'm like, What? I'm like thinking, well, I mean, because he knows so much and he's so eloquent, he knows his scripture, and he's like, nah, it's not that at all. He says, they are all burnt out on religion. They see it for the hypocrisy that it is. They see it for the emptiness that it is. 
Basically, they're trying to do on the outside what only God can do from the inside out. And so they see the hypocrisy in their families. They see the hypocrisy in their parents. They see the lies that are being exposed on a daily basis. All their life, they've seen religion. And they see the emptiness of that religion. And that's not at all what God is calling us to. God is not calling us to religion. He's calling us to a relationship. He's calling us to to do something that is supernatural that only he can do from the inside out. But then he's calling us and inviting us to come in and participate with this work that he's doing from the inside out. So when we say that we have no sin, when we say that we are sinless, when we say that, you know, we've reached this, this place, this plateau, we're lying. And the truth is not in us. And the reality is we don't have to sin, but guess what? We will sin. And when we sin, we have an advocate, defense attorney. We have somebody that goes before God the Father and lets him know, Dad, I covered this one. My sin covered him. My sin covered her, paid for in full. And then we're taken into the care of Jesus so that he can continue to grow us up in the things of God. But, but don't get it twisted. We have to c- cooperate with that work that God is doing from the inside out. We have to actually be willing to acknowledge. It was 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, where Jesus says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what that does is that brings us in relationship with God, not that we won't go to heaven if we don't confess our sins. All of our sins are forgiven. But when we sin in that confession, there is an acknowledgement that, God, I need you. I'm desperate for you. Here I am once again confessing maybe the same thing that I've confessed more than once. But nonetheless, Lord, I know that you hear me. I know that you forgive me. I know that you receive me. And in that, we're developing this closeness and this bond with God to know that he's just so gracious to continue to forgive us. It says, Jesus Christ the righteous. It means that Jesus is fully qualified to serve as our advocate because he himself is sinlessly perfect. He has passed heaven's bar exam and is qualified to represent clients in heaven's court of law. Um, we need Jesus because, as our advocate because Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He goes on in that section of scripture to say that he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Big word, but it comes down to this. It has the idea of presenting the gift of the gods so as to turn away the displeasure of the gods. The Greeks thought of this in the sense of man essentially bribing the gods in doing favors for man. But in the Christian idea of propitiation, God himself presents himself, Jesus Christ, as that which will turn away his righteous wrath against our sin. So because God is just, God will require a payment or a penalty for sin. Nothing impure, nothing unrighteous, nothing unholy will ever enter into the presence of God. That's his standard. And so because of that, because we have sinned, we cannot come into the presence of God. We cannot stand before God. We don't have a righteousness to speak of to present to God. We're we're guilty. 
We're sinners. We're dirty in need of help. And so what God does and what Romans, the book of Romans, beautifully teaches is that God is not only just, but he is the justifier of those who will come into his presence. He did that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ, God himself paid for the penalty of our sins so that we would be just in God's presence. We would be justified to stand in his presence because of that sacrifice. Now he says, but also for the whole world. So the sins of Jesus paid for all the sins of all the world. Well, then that means everyone will go to heaven, right? No, because God has a standard. Everyone can go to heaven, but unfortunately not everybody wants to. Not everybody wants to receive the sacrifice that God made on their behalf. They think it's limited or, or it doesn't meet their definition of what they think is fair or just. It doesn't matter. God has made a way. And the fact that there's a way is an, is an incredible thing. On the other side of that equation, you have something called Calvinism. And Calvinism, Calvinism teaches that Jesus only died for the elect. If you know anything about Calvinism, you know that it has five points. And those five points are described or delineated through the word tulip. T-U-L-I-P, tulip. T stands for total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. P, the perseverance of the saints. Or once saved, always saved. The unconditional, I'm sorry, the limited atonement, the L in tulip, in Calvinism teaches that Jesus only died for the elect. That's not what it says right here. That's a contradiction of this very verse. The Bible says that Jesus Christ died for the whole world. And so there's not limited atonement. He didn't just die for the, those who would receive him, for those who would be in heaven. He died for the sins of the world. We let the Bible speak. We let the, the word of God be true. And every man a liar, as, as it even declares. And so God died for the whole world. Will the whole world receive it? No. In John chapter 1, verse 12, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And so you have to receive that gift. You have to bring that gift into your life. And then there's a participating with God in this thing called Christianity. It doesn't stop there. So many give lip service to, well, yeah, I prayed a prayer. And then you live like the devil the rest of your life? Something's wrong. If you prayed a prayer, then something happened on the inside. God came, came into your heart. He tabernacles inside of you. You now become the holy of holies where the very presence of God resides. And God is doing a work, best believe, from the inside out in your life and in your heart. I like what Alfred writes on Luther. Luther says, It is a patent fact that thou too art part of the whole world so that thine heart cannot deceive itself and think, the Lord died for Peter and Paul, but not for me. Not true. The whole world. You and I are included in that. Moving on, verses 3 through 6. John writes, by, And now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. 
He who, say, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And so now he's beginning to give proof text for what it looks like for those who name the name of Christ. It's not merely a lip service. It's not just saying something. But now my behavior is lining up in a certain way because God is supernaturally doing something from the inside out. Spurgeon writes, those men who think that God's grace when fully, fairly, and plainly preached will lead them into sin know not what they say nor whereof they affirm. Shall I hate God because he is kind to me? Shall I curse him because he blesses me? I venture to affirm that very few men reason thus. And so very important that we understand something has taken place in our relationship with sin when we became a Christian. Before we were a Christian, it was just our goal to sin. The whole objective in my life as I can remember it before I became a Christian was don't get caught. That was like my goal, don't get caught. If I was messing around, don't let the other one find out. If I had drugs in the car, don't get caught. That was my whole goal. Don't let mom see what's going on. Just don't get caught. That was my goal. My relationship with sin was very different. For the Christian, a Christian no longer loves sin as he once did. Number two, a Christian no longer brags about their sin as he once did. Number three, a Christian no longer plans to sin as he once did. Number four, a Christian no longer fondly remembers his sin as he once did. Five, a Christian never fully enjoys his sin as he once did. And six, a Christian no longer is comfortable in habitual sin as he once was. Our relationship to sin is very much different. I'm not saying we don't sin. Our relationship to sin is very different as a Christian. Why? Once again, because Christ dwells in me. Because Jesus is in me. And he is repulsed by sin. And so there's a conviction of sin. That conviction wasn't there before being a Christian. Again, my old goal, don't get caught. Spurgeon writes, the Christian no longer loves sin. It is the object of his sternest horror. He no longer regards it as a mere trifle, plays with it or talks of it with unconcern. Sin is dejected in the Christian's heart, though it is not ejected. Sin may enter the heart and fight for dominion, but it cannot sit upon the throne. Does sin sit upon the throne of your heart? It shouldn't. There should be a conviction. There should be a genuine repulsion to sin and its effect. And as we continue to confess that to God, we have fellowship with God and we have fellowship with one another. That's why it's so important that you are connected with individuals in the body of Christ. We shy from it. If you look at what social media is doing in our culture, it's causing people to be more and more disconnected, not connected. No, but I got 550 friends. Yeah, those people aren't your friends. Yeah, those people aren't your friends. Uh, Go ahead and move and tell them to come help you move and see how many friends on your 550 list show up. Yeah, those aren't friends. Friends are people that you can see face to face and you can have conversations with. And and they're in your grill. They're in your grill. They're up in your face letting you know, hey, hey, why are you doing that? What's going on there? But social media 
It's separating us. We think technology is bringing us together, drawing us closer. No, it's isolating us. Remember the tactic of the devil for the Christian to isolate, divide, and conquer. To divide and conquer is his goal in your life. He wants you separated from fellowship, separated from light, so that you would continue to walk in that darkness, so that you continue to be blinded. If we're getting our marching orders from the world, Oy vey, we're really lost. We look really good in contrast to the world. The world's not our standard. The word of God is, Jesus is. Fellowship with one another as we walk in the light, exposing the darkness and the things that are in our hearts so that we can grow in the grace and knowledge of God and his word. Moving on, verses 7 through 11, we'll close here. Verses 7 through 11. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light. And there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so he has this play on words where he says, Brethren, I write to you no new commandment. uh, I'm sorry, I write no new commandment to you. And then you go a little further and he says, A new commandment I write to you. Uh, John, you writing a new commandment or not a new commandment? Is this a new commandment or an old commandment? What's going on? I'm kind of confused. Kick, 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 kick. The commandment we had from the very beginning, the commandment is one simply to love. Not to hate, but to love. And love will be the defining mark of the Christian. Not standing behind a pulpit and being able to teach a Bible study. Not these things that we look at, these outward trappings of, whoa, that's a spiritual person. No, no, no. Love. Love will be the thing that defines the Christian, because God is love. And so the old commandment is given to us where? All the way back in the law, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the great Shema, the great prayer that every Jew prays every morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Right? And then he goes on, teach this to your children. You know, teach them while you're on the way, so on and so forth. And so Jesus comes on the scene. Let me read it to you. It's found in John's Gospel, chapter 13. Jesus tells us in John, chapter 13, verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And so what is this new commandment based on the old commandment? Love God, but through that love as an extension, love people. It would be the Sadducee that would come to Jesus trying to trick or trap him. Lord, which is the great commandment? Jesus says the first is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Adds mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. These two, the whole law hangs on these two Commandments, And so he's bringing the great Shema, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
And he's saying, here's your application for loving God. It's seen practically in loving your brothers and sisters and loving people. It's not this idea of sacrifice for religion, of all of these great things that you're doing for God. Narrow it down to love, to loving people. The commandment John wrote of was at the same time both old in the sense that it was preached to them their whole Christian lives and new in the sense that it was called the new commandment by Jesus in John chapter 13. The new commandment to love that Jesus spoke of was really new for several reasons. One of the most important reasons was that Jesus displayed a kind of love never seen before, a love we were to imitate. And so Jesus sets the example for us. The cross points uh, four directions to show that love of Jesus is wide enough to include every human being, long enough to last through all eternity, deep enough to reach the most guilty sinner, and high enough to take us to heaven. This is the new love, the love the world had never really seen before, the work of Jesus on the cross. And so the application of this love is now seen in Jesus as everyone is included in this opportunity to be able to go to heaven, to be with God, to acknowledge that they are sinners in need of a Savior. He goes on to say, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. Previously in this chapter, John examined us uh, according to the moral measure of our walk with God. Later, he will examine us according to the doctrine as a measure of our walk with God. Now he examines us according to our love for other Christians as a measure of our walk with God. And why do we need this? Why must this be the measure? I don't know if you know this, but I happen to know this about myself. I'm a selfish, self-centered human being. We all are, actually. Just I'll let you in on the joke. We all are. I discovered that plainly, very clearly this week. On Tuesday was my birthday. Yay for me, 51 years old. Guess what happens on your Go ahead, it's your birthday. Go ahead. I mean, it's pretty fun. I don't know if you have these, but man, everybody calls you and tells you nice and wonderful things and sends you little notes. And I got to go to breakfast with my wife. And then we just hung out. And I noticed as we were hanging out, you know, I said a couple things that kind of maybe would have got a different response had it not been my birthday. But I noticed she kind of ignored them. They like went, shoo, over her head. And I was like, wow, I can say mean things. And she just loves me so much. She's not going to let me have it this time. It's my birthday. Right? And then we got this opportunity to go to dinner. And at dinner, there we were with my daughter and her husband at a restaurant that he's the general manager at. So I was being treated. And I was like, yeah, treated. And so we look at the menu and I'm like, dang, this ain't a restaurant I would have picked. You feel me? But he said, hey, order, you know, I think you should get this and this. And so, man, they brought this flatbread, two versions. Uh, it's kind of like pizza, right? Just flatbread to open up with, with fresh calamari, fresh, 
freshest calamari I've ever tasted. I mean, this is good stuff, and we're dipping it in sauces, and it's just scrumptious, right? And then here comes my order. Three sides, mashed potatoes, macaroni and cheese, and these little awesome little, um, what were they, Brussels sprouts with little bacon bits. Just, oh, man. That's just sides. My meal, oh, my gosh. It felt like Flintstones, right? But my meal was a ribeye steak bone-in cooked medium to perfection and not a half order but a full order of king crab legs woo woo drawn butter on the side for flavor of course and i don't know if you've ever eaten king crab legs at a fancy restaurant like the one we happen to find ourselves in but they cut them for you there's not that much work you take your fork and they just slide right out and I thought I would share them with him, and I, I had given him one, and he's like, oh, I'm so full, because he ordered like a pork chop that was really big, but I was like, oh, give me my king crab leg back then. I got plenty of room, and I just ate it all, and then they brought us three desserts, not one, three desserts. It was tiramisu, this dark chocolate something scrumptious thing, and then this other, what was the other one? It was this uh, bread pudding with, oh, like... Uh, some nuts. I don't know if it was pecan or almonds. And I was like, wow, wow. And so there I am that night laying in my bed thinking, God, how come every day can't be my birthday, man? This is, whoo. Yeah, that was a good day, man. I start reviewing it and taking it in and sense starts kicking in. Johnny, if every day was your birthday, you'd probably weigh like 637 pounds, all that food you ate, and you would treat your wife ruthlessly because she was gracious that day, very, very extra, she's usually gracious, but she was extra gracious, and you were just so selfish because you were mean at times, and she would just let it go because it was your birthday, and just all of those people paying attention to you and drawn to you and giving you all this attention, you really like that, huh? I was like, wow, I'm pretty selfish. If every day was my birthday, I would be ruined, wouldn't I? And as we look at this, we look at what God is doing. Do we need God desperately so that we can walk in the light and expose the darkness of our hearts and how selfish we are? Maybe not every day is like our birthday and we don't have that reflection. But bottom line, every day we're selfish. Every day we're self-seeking. Every day there's a, a hint and a bit of that wicked heart that we have and God wants his light to expose that in our lives, that we would be molded and shaped into his image. And that can only take us so far. Did you know that if we acted like that every day and everyone responded to us like that every day, then we would become like the stars of our community, the actors and actresses, the musicians. Michael Jackson and both Prince died. Drugs being introduced into their lives because nobody could tell them no. They had so much money, so much power, so much fame that all they did was gather around them individuals that would give them what they wanted when they wanted it. They lived very selfish self-centered lives because nobody would tell them no. 
And for us as Christians, that's not what God wants for us. He doesn't want us to simply be so self-absorbed that all we do is gather people around us that are just going to respond to the way that we want them to respond. God says, no, I want you to be in fellowship. And remember what the foundation of this chapter was, that your joy may be full. He wants a fullness of joy to be the, the result of our lives as we walk in the light. And unfortunately, walking in the light means that darkness in our hearts has to be exposed. The Lord wants to expose that, not to condemn us. It's the enemy that wants to condemn us, but to convict us, to let us know that we need to repent, to let us know that we need to confess our sins, to let us know that we're in this together. We're all in this together. We're all growing, hopefully, right? We're participating with God. We're cooperating in those things. But none of us have reached that state of sinless perfection. None of us have arrived in that sense. And so the demarcation for this love, for this light, is love towards one another. Don't ever get sidetracked with anything else. And love for one another takes selflessness. Not selfishness, selflessness that we would pay attention to one another, that we would be concerned about the things that others are concerned with, that we would look to represent God to them. We live in an age of participation trophies. Everyone's a winner. Everyone gets a trophy at the end of the season. So I was reading an article on this father who had this world-class daughter runner, little girl, but she was good. And so she joins this athletic event where first, second, and third place are going to get a medal. They're going to get gold, silver, bronze. She comes in fifth place in this race, and they give her a participation ribbon, a participation trophy. And the dad takes his daughter with their little trophy, and goes up to the stands and says, we won't be receiving that, thank you. And it hurts her. Dad, but I participated. I tried my best, and I didn't win, and I just wanted something. No, give it back. They told us that we were going we to get a trophy or ribbons for, or a medal for first, second, and third. You came in fifth. What that caused that girl to do was work harder, to try better. Because she wanted a ribbon or a trophy or an award so desperately that it forced her to actually realize, hey, there's some good competition out there. And if I want that, if that's the prize, if that's the goal, then i got to work harder. And so she worked harder and eventually made it to the Olympics and was able to compete at the highest of levels and was very much rewarded when she won something there. And so because we live in a culture where we have downplayed the fact that there is actual truth and lies, that there's a better lifestyle and a worse lifestyle and there's better choices to make with life and worse choices to make with life, we need to recognize that that's not what God's about. And maybe our culture thinks like that. Maybe our culture puts things like that, but God doesn't. And so we need to recognize that there is a standard and that we fall short of that standard. But that's not to condemn us. It's to convict us. And in that conviction should come repentance. And in this religious idea of whatever people want to do 
to appease God and, and, and be happy with God or have them think that God is happy with them. Guys, God has given it to us in one word, and it's love. And love is an impossibility for us who are selfish and self-centered on a consistent basis. And because it's an impossibility, it takes God to do it in us so that he can do it through us. And that takes a daily, personal relationship with God. Without that, we'll default to selfish. It's just what we do. And so don't lose sight of what God is calling us to do. God wants to love through us. That we would be that vessel that he can pour in and then through. That's what God's desire is. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that you desire to reach the world through your children as your mouthpiece, as your loving arms, as your listening ear. And I pray, Father, that we would reach out and just allow you to work in and through us, to be able to love. And so, Lord, help us. We're desperate for you. We need you in every step of the way. And I just pray, Father, that we would continue to uh, participate with you. It's nothing that we're doing, Lord. You're doing it through us. We just need to yield to it. We just need to surrender to it. We just need to throw our hands up and acknowledge, Lord, that we don't have the power, the strength, or even the will to do it. But your word tells us that you are giving us the desire and the ability. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for that. I pray that we would work with you, cooperate with you, and not be against you, Lord. And so in our Christian walks, Lord, we want to be what you would have us to be in this world. And Lord, that our marching orders would come from your love letter. They wouldn't come from the world or even the examples that we have in the world. But Father, that we would just simply allow you to complete the work that you've begun as we participate with you. In Jesus' name, amen.